Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi, I'm Stephen. Welcome to the New Statesman's first Devolution special podcast, in which I'm joined by our Scotland editor, Chris Deering, to talk about events in Holyrood. And then you ask us why Plaid Cymru can't make the same breakthrough as the SNP in Wales. So I'm joined by our Scotland editor, Chris Deering, and eagle-eyed eagle-eared listeners of the New Statesman podcast will immediately notice as we get talking that we are only talking about two of the three devolved parliaments. That is because my colleague Alva Ray is working on a brilliant, or at least it was brilliant in the draft I read, uh, a brilliant piece about Northern Ireland, legacy prosecutions, the government's proposals on which will be in a forthcoming issue of New Statesman magazine and a forthcoming episode of the New Statesman's podcast's new Ion Devolution slot. So this week it is just Scotland and Wales, but we will aim most weeks to do all three devolved parliaments in one unless we're doing some kind of big special. But thank you very much, Chris, for uh, joining to break the champagne. Is that a thing they do with boats or is that a myth? But thank you either way for being with us for the first one of these. Thank you for that very strange welcome, Stephen. So you've written a, a piece about a very powerful interview than Jack McConnell, Labour's last, and I'm not quite sure if that means most recent or final, First Minister of Scotland has given in Holyrood magazine about the absence of the devolution dividend, the state of the debate in Scottish politics, and you've written some reflections on it. Yeah, What, what did he say and where is, in, in his view, in your view, the, the state of the policy debate in Scotland uh, right now? Yeah, so uh, as you say, Stephen, Jack McConnell was Labour's last uh, or most recent First Minister, depending on how you want to look at it, and he lost power to the SNP in the 2007 election. And as we know, the SNP have been in power at Holyrood ever since and taken a very stiff grip of uh, Scotland and they've won every election since then and they're still 20 points ahead in the polls. The consequence of that, of course, is that even though we had a referendum on independence in 2014, the argument or the, the, the victory for the, the no side then hasn't settled the argument at all. It was obviously relatively close, 55-45, and the SNP machine had just continued since 2014 to push for a second referendum to build up support for independence, whereas on the unionist side, there was probably a bit of, we've won that argument and, and we'll get on now with, with other things. But the SNP haven't really allowed them to, and I think the SNP's electoral success has made it easier for them to continue to push the arguments for independence and to demand a referendum. Everything's a good argument for independence the way that the SNP sees it. And the point McConnell makes, so he's someone who campaigned for 
a Scottish Parliament for two or three decades before it, it finally arrived. He was on the nationalist wing of the Labour Party, small-end nationalist wing of the Labour Party, where he saw putting Scotland first as, as quite an important thing. And he said in this interview with Hollywood magazine that I always talked about the United Kingdom rather than I've always been really clear in my own head about the right of the Welsh to identify their own constitutional position, the right of the Scots, the right of the Northern Irish, the right of the English. The UK isn't one nation, it's a multinational construct. And I think that is pretty much where Jack McConnell and people who think like him in the Labour Party have been coming from. They wanted to create a devolved Scottish Parliament which would allow an element of democracy into the decisions that were being taken in Scotland beyond the simple vote in a general election where Conservatives were winning uh, elections obviously through the, the 80s and until midway through the 90s, even though Scotland was voting Labour consistently through that period. So the idea then was that with the, the, the complete focus of a Scottish Parliament on Scottish domestic matters, there'd be more attention paid, more debate given, more laws passed on matters like education and health and the economy in Scotland, which got very little parliamentary time at Westminster because they were competing with, it, with everything else. And Jack McConnell's point is that really hasn't happened. There's been some of it, but the argument about the Constitution has so overshadowed everything else that we haven't really got to grips with reforming public services in Scotland or taking the big decisions on the economy taking some risks, challenging vested interests. I suppose if you look at the reforms that maybe even started with the major government and Blair continued and intensified them and Cameron and Gove continued some of them as well. There's been an awful lot of reform to public services down south and we haven't really had much of that in Scotland. It's been a much more hand-in-hand with the the, the unions, hand-in-hand with what you might call the vested interests. So Scotland's government parties don't have the scars on their back from dealing with the unions, as Tony Blair famously put it. So that's Jack McConnell's point, that after 20 years of a Scottish Parliament, we've just achieved what he would regard as as being very little. Uh, And the way I put it sometimes is that if you're a a poor kid from the uh, east end of Glasgow, are your life chances much better today than they were 20 years ago when the Scottish Parliament was coming into existence? And the answer to that is probably not. And that's a pretty serious charge to, to lay against MSPs ministers of all stripes over the last 20 years. It's an interesting one because one of the areas of public service reform that that I uh, bang on all about is the police. Now, in 2013, of course, the the SNP government did embark on what I realise is actually probably the last major bit of um, institutional public service reform in Scotland in the shape of Police Scotland, which I imagine will return to arguments about the effectiveness or otherwise of Police Scotland, of that reform in future episodes. But um, yeah, so I guess basically the question I is, do you think that sort of absence of a focus on how to govern Scotland differently and better, the kind of the 2011 and 2011 re-elect, yeah, one of the central issues was knife was knife crime and ditto in the 2007 first SNP election. So do you think that the referendum itself is the kind of inflection point or do you think that it's partly than what we might think of as cross-party elite opinion, which yeah is very fairly orthodox attitudes to how you provide public service provision, a quite conscious and deliberate effort on the part of the then Scottish Labour government to not do things than the new Labour government was doing down south. What do you think the kind of cause of it is or yeah, would you just reject the idea and police Scotland counts as... Uh, public service reform? No, absolutely not. And I I wouldn't say, and I don't think Jack McConnell would say that there has been no reform whatsoever in in any area. area. Of course there has. I think it's more about the nature of the reform that has taken place and probably the limited scope. So you're right, Police Scotland was a pretty major reform. I would point out it was a pretty extreme form of centralisation. And that's one of the things that uh, has been thrown at the SNP, that power was devolved to Edinburgh from Westminster, but it very much stopped in Edinburgh. And 
the argument that's put is that the SNP are very, because of their bigger ambitions, they really want to control the narrative about what happens in Scotland. So having very tight control of public services, of the police, of the education system, of local government, especially where we have a, a, a profoundly centralised system of local government. So when they do bring in reforms, it's more about ensuring that they are keeping control of power rather than maybe passing power down, which is one of the ironies of devolution in Scotland. You know, and Jack McConnell, as first minister, he was the first Scotland, he made Scotland the first part of the UK to bring in the smoking ban, which seems like a, an obvious thing to do now, but it didn't feel like that then. It was quite controversial then. There was quite a lot of pushback on on that and he did interesting things on immigration and actually some interesting things on education as well. I think the the problem that when you're thinking about the SNP is that when it comes to reform, good governments or maybe even bad governments as well, but when it comes to pushing through reform, it's very hard to do it without breaking a few eggs. It's very hard to do it without taking on the professions, for example, in the areas that you want to reform because those professions, those unions, those vested interests are inevitably quite conservative about what they do. They don't want politicians to come in and rip up what they're doing and tell them they're doing it wrong and they need to do it another way. And so we've seen a lot of a program between uh, the teaching profession, the teaching unions and governments of various stripes down south. We haven't really had that up here, although we've got a bit of industrial unrest here at, at the moment. But overall, the, the, the governments, the evolved governments in Scotland haven't tried to reform against the professions. But you might think that's a good thing, you might think that's a bad thing, but I would say that what it's, what, cumulatively what we've ended up with is our services that are not particularly reformed, where the easy option has been taken, worked with the professions to, uh, who, who will allow them to go this far and no further. And what you lack then is any sense of radicalism or any sense of pushing people to go beyond what they're comfortable with. And that's where we are in Scotland at the moment. The perspective lots of people would have as well, there is a distinct Scottish political culture of, of public service reform. It is, as you say, universal provision of most services, yeah, reform with the grain rather than against. Well, actually, and this, I think, is the fun thing about Police Scotland, right, is in some ways, as you say, it's major centralising reform, but it's not like Police Scotland was something that particularly went against the grain of what the police wanted to do. It's less reforming than the Theresa May's era reforms as, as Home Secretary from that perspective. But some people say, well, the big idea is, is universalization. And the other interesting missed devolution dividend, which we saw a lot in COVID, is one of the ideas and lots of people bought into, myself included, is that you would get people learning from what the various governments have done well, which we've seen in COVID just hasn't really happened. There was the, the lack of interest in, say, Wales is fast to roll out, even at the point when the one thing that matters in British politics was doing the rollout as quickly as possible. Why do you think it is that it's very rare you hear someone in Westminster saying, oh, they've done this thing in Scotland and it's interesting. Or you hear, it's very rare to hear someone, I don't go down, whereas I haven't gone down at all since, since the last lockdown. When I, when I, when I go to Holyrood and when I, when I go to the Senate, you very rarely hear in any of those parliaments someone saying it's interesting what someone else is doing in the other parliament. Yes, I, I think that's absolutely true. I think in part that's to do with the political makeup of the various parliaments. So if you have a Labour administration in Wales, a Conservative administration at Westminster, and an SNP administration in Scotland, there's fairly diametric opposition between the three parliaments. And certainly, given the SNP's desire for an independent Scotland, they very often define 
Scottish decisions and the nature of Scottish political culture against the things that are happening down south. Now, sometimes they may have a point, sometimes they don't. Uh, sometimes it feels like the, the famous Scottish whinge where nothing that can be done in Westminster can ever be any good uh, and there's never anything to learn from Westminster. And if you have a, a policy that you want to uh, to propose, you better make sure if, if you fancy it for Scotland that it's proposed in Scotland first because if it happens in Westminster, it's sure as hell not going to happen up here. So you've got that. You've obviously got very real tensions between the Nationalist administration in Scotland and the, the Conservative administration down south. The real personal relationships are not great. I think Nicola Sturgeon got on well with David Cameron, but she certainly hasn't got on well with either Theresa May or Boris Johnson. And obviously at the moment we've got this tension about whether there should be a second referendum on independence, which Nicola Sturgeon says, I won the election in May. I've formed a sort of coalition with the Greens, which gives me a majority uh, in the, the Holyrood Parliament. And we are passing laws saying we want there to be a referendum. So who are you to say that we can't have one? And Boris Johnson saying, well, you're just not getting one. It's too soon. There isn't really public demand for a referendum in Scotland, which is true, which the polls tell is true. And so you've now got that they're kind of probably heading for the courts on this to test out who really has the power to say yes or no to whether there, there should be a referendum. So there are personal and political tensions in there that bleed through into everything else, I think, so that, that, that there's very little benefit of the doubt given by one side to the other. I think probably when you had a Labour government at Westminster and a Labour government in Edinburgh, there was a lot more collaboration there and a lot more willingness, certainly latterly, in the, the Labour period in office to allow someone like Jack McConnell to try things out and to go his own way on various things. But there was obviously a degree of trust there between uh, you know, two wings of the, the same party. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call... You ask us. And our question this week is from Noah. And as you're submitting these questions, if you have a Devo question, don't feel you have to wait for when the next one comes around. It you know, will all go into our producer's massive brain and it will then come out at an appropriate time uh, in this slot. So our question this week is from Noah. What will it take for Labour to lose power in Wales? And why have Plaid Cymru enjoyed so little success in pursuing their independence agenda compared to the SNP? Now, this is something we've talked about a lot on the podcast, and I imagine we'll, we, yeah, we'll continue to be one of the... Chris, I'm actually really interested in your thoughts on this, because obviously in 1999, Plaid Cymru did, did better than the SNP did. Now, that very much isn't, hasn't been the trajectory of the two parties since. So what do you think the SNP did right from 1999 to 2007? In a way, it probably starts before then, Stephen. I, th I think probably in the late 80s, early 90s, when Alex Salmond really got a hold of the SNP the first time round and started to push that party towards being more of a social democratic political movement, because previously they'd been all over the place. They were 
sort of right-wing aspects in the 1970s and wandering around the place and really just taking their opportunities where they saw them. But I think Salmon saw the fact that Scotland fairly regularly in its elections since maybe the 1950s had voted left of centre and thought if the SNP is going to try and steal Labour's clothes, which has been the intention for a long time, we're going to have to form a political identity and that identity clearly should be on the left of of centre and he obviously is a left of centre politician as well. So the SNP did a lot of the groundwork before the Scottish Parliament arrived in terms of shaping the identity that they wanted to, to have. And what that meant was that when Labour as everyone expected, uh, took power in the first Scottish Parliament election, although in coalition with the Liberal Democrats. In a country like Scotland, where the Conservatives are very unlikely to get power in any scenario I can imagine in a devolved Scotland in the foreseeable future, we still get the legacy of the the Margaret Thatcher years and the the economic legacy there. We've still got Conservative governments in Westminster that Scots don't vote for and feel resentful towards. You've got Boris Johnson, who could be hand-knitted to irritate most Scots, I think. So what you had then was a Labour Party that had been in mind, been in power in Scotland in terms of the municipal part of Scotland that had dominated the number of Scottish MPs that were sent to Westminster for decades. And then the Scottish Parliament comes along. Labour, as everyone expects, takes power there. And after, I guess, eight years in power there, there was a sense that the Scottish Parliament wasn't really delivering, that it lacked energy and that it lacked ambition, and that Labour had become incredibly complacent. They just regarded Scotland as their fiefdom. That, that was they, they ruled in Scotland and there was nothing they would need to do uh, that could particularly change that. But you had the SNP full of energy, standing up for Scotland, pushing back against Westminster as probably the Labour government became less popular at Westminster, against the Conservatives, promising to stand up as Scotland's party at Westminster and uh, at Holyrood. And so when that moment came where the voters got a bit tired of the Labour Party, there was almost a, an alternative left of centre party that you could plug to replace them, a party that had been very well talked about in Scotland. They'd been prominent for a long time in the Scottish Parliament and before that with a lot you know reasonable amount of MPs at Westminster. They were all over the Scottish media. They had high profile and talented figures like Alex Salmond and Nicholas Sturgeon even back then, John Swinney, people who have you know been central to the SNP administrations in, in, in Edinburgh. And so it wasn't really that much of a leap from Labour to the SNP if I guess if you were a left of centre voter and and you remember in 2007 it was a minority administration that the SNP won it wasn't until 2011 they got their their overall majority so there wasn't really a sense then that we were driving towards independence I think it was more about a replacement government which ticked a lot of the boxes that Labour had ticked but also brought a new energy a clear level of talent and a declared intention to stand up for Scotland. Because I think the interesting thing is I think then a large part of, of the answer I think is actually about Welsh Labour's success in appropriating some of Plaid Cymru's clothes, because I think they, although in terms of their left-right position, they have similarly moved about quite a bit. You know, they are a broad party. Yeah, historically, they've been a broad party in terms of their ideology. They have a much more coherent core vote than the SNP, or indeed than most successful nationalist parties tend to have, because they have that base in the Welsh language. And in an odd way, it feels that a lot of the time people will write these pieces going, oh, the Scottish Labour Party should learn from the success of Welsh Labour, which I think is a bit of a dead end because the success of Welsh Labour is partly be the incumbent, borrow the thing that your challenges, that people like about your challenges, or, and, yeah. and amp up your... It's really not as straightforward as that up here. You know, it's, um... In Wales, being a, a soft nationalist, which in different ways... You, I think it's fair to say is true of Rodri Morgan, Carwin Jones, and Mark Drakeford, the current yeah the current incumbent yeah essentially you know, 
you know, all Welsh speakers, people with a strong sense of themselves as Welsh first, perhaps European second, British third, who see the union as a pragmatic arrangement rather than a an ideological one. I mean, yeah, I once had a very fun lunch with, um, oh my God, I'm going to forget what Lord Morris's first name is, Tony Blair's first Attorney General and had been Secretary of State for Wales under Callaghan Wilson saying, I never forgot that I'm the representative of a conquered nation. And it's hard to see how any of that soft nationalist space, what it even would look like in a Scottish politics context. Like what is being a soft nap from a retail politics perspective in 2021, if you are an Asawa. Yeah, and that has been one of the real problems facing Labour because you've had, you know, so for example, in, in May at the election, something like 90% of voters voted for a party that most closely aligned with their constitutional position. It's an utterly dominant debate in Scotland and inevitably the SNP win on the yes side because you know, they, they are by far the most prominent party pair of independence and then the conservatives on the unionist side are giving no quarter on that as well and you know the labor party has not just some people in it who are a bit more sympathetic to nationalism they might not be for outright independence but they do understand that sense of scottish identity and the labor party has also lost quite a lot of its voters to the snp people who you know felt that the snp more closely represented a reasonable socialist and who have made the flip from unionism to supporting independence and and labor if it's to succeed and never get back into power, needs to win some of those people back. And it's the question then, if you have that commitment to the constitution and, and the voting habits of people, how does Labour win them back without coming out for independence? And if it doesn't believe in independence, then how can it come out for independence? So it's caught on a, on a stick on that side. Of, and I think Anas Sarwar, who you know impressed lots and lots of people in May, had only been in uh, the job as Scottish Labour leader for a very short period of time. But in terms of the debates and whatever, he was full of energy, full of ideas, very determined to try and shift the national debate away from independence back to talking about education and health and the economy, you know, as we said to them, then we'll good luck with that. And true enough, Labour didn't do particularly well in the election. They could have done worse, but they didn't do particularly well. They're still in third place behind the, the Conservatives. So we've got council elections next year up here. Labour are keen to try and win Glasgow back, which was obviously their major heartland in Scotland, which the SNP has taken. And it, it runs the council and it has the MSPs, MPs mostly are in SNP hands. And Labour wants to start to show some kind of come back by beginning to win back those heartland uh, seats, either at a local or a, a Hollywood or a, a Westminster level. But it still feels an awful long way away. The SNP are still 20 points ahead in the polls, you know, absolutely gravity-defying when it comes to, uh, to, to popularity among the elected. Nicola Sturgeon is still, you know, incredibly popular, given she's been in power for so long and the party has been in, in power for so long. Um, but I, I think it's clear that Anna Sarr was the best hope the Labour Party's had, really, since the since they lost office, but you speak to anyone in the Labour Party and no one has a solution to this. No one says, we're missing a trick, this is what we have to do. There's an awful lot of head-scratching going on and deep concern that there is actually a way back for them at all. Yeah, and I think that kind of comes back to, to Noah's question, right? which is part of the answer is being the third party is really difficult. If you are the third party, you just have to desperately find your wedge issue and hope that it allows you to transform politics. The first party, in some ways, the Scottish Conservatives have have had great success in using a wedge issue to turn themselves into the second party. But it doesn't quite feel to me like their wedge issue can ever make them the first party. And they're now almost this kind of bed blocker in Scottish politics. That's ex that's exactly right. But the Scottish Conservatives, as, as I said earlier, will never 
rule at Holyrood, as far as I can see into the future. There's a, probably a ceiling of about 30% on their vote, so they'll get the staunch unionist voters who are voting really to stop the SNP, to stop independence. And then you've got a bunch of people in the middle who might occasionally, they might quite like Ruth Davidson. She's gone now as leader of the Scottish Conservatives. They might quite like Anna Sarwar. They quite like Nicola Sturgeon. But actually, they're up for grabs on the Constitution as well. They may vote yes, they may vote no next time. They're, they're, they're more open about it maybe than they were in, in 2014. But the problem for Labour is what, what is the issue that, that brings it back? Unless, it's almost, you almost need to have a referendum and either the SNP lose it, at which point you would imagine that would be pretty, do pretty severe damage to their, their, their future as a government. And at that point, Labour are really the only option to replace them. So they might find a way back through that. Or the SNP win it and we become independent and that solves the constitutional problem for the Scottish Labour Party. And they can just, you know, then we can talk about schools and hospitals and the economy and Labour can uh, try and find a way back through that. But I think, as Jack McConnell said this week, Scottish politics feels completely stuck at the moment, just Groundhog Day in this constitutional question. And that leaves all three of the main parties stuck where they are as well, which is to the SNP's benefit, a bit to the Tories' benefit, and very much not to the benefit of the Scottish Labour Party. Yeah, and to return to the sort of Welsh dimension, I think to dislodge Welsh Labour, actually, firstly, I think you can see how it could have happened last, you know, this year had it not been for the fact that the vaccine row that meant it was a great time to be an incumbent government, the personal performance of Mark Drakeford, who, you know, had become incredibly popular, but they need all of the stuff that the SNP had said in 2007, a popular and a very able leader, leader in Alex Salmond, which I actually think in Adam Price that they did have, a Welsh Labour government that was perceived not to have succeeded, which they did not have, and then almost certainly a, an unfavourable headwind from from the Labour, from politics in Westminster. And in some ways, the, the, the distinct differences is that I, I find it possible to imagine a scenario where the Scottish Conservatives could take power. Whereas I feel I can draw up a scenario where the Welsh Conservatives could take power in Wales. And at the least, if Plaid Cymru were to take power, they would have to do so in an arrangement which would... Yeah, the the first SNP government was reliant on the votes of third-place Conservatives, but because there weren't very many of them, they weren't that influential, right? The the government, that first-term government was not a right-wing government. Whereas I am yet to work out a plausible scenario where Plaidcombe could take office as the senior party. Obviously, they've taken office as the junior partner in, in government with Welsh Labour. And then they're midway through negotiating a slightly more uh, permanent arrangement for the course of this parliament, where they then have this problem, they lose their distinctiveness. But the last thing, they, in some ways, it, it would be as big a disaster for them to take office in a coalition that obviously tilted Wales to the right, as it would be for them to continue in these coalitions where they're subsumed into Labour. So I think in some ways the answer for both Scottish Labour and Plaid Cymru's problem is don't be the third party, it sucks. It certainly doesn't help. And also sometimes it's a bit about luck, isn't it? It's about the circumstances changing. You do what you can to nudge that along, but sometimes you've just got to wait and you've got to wait for something to go wrong. The old time for a change, which tends to come along, although it doesn't seem to be in Scotland, uh, on the schedule we've grown used to in, in Britain. So I think a bit of luck comes into it as well. And you've just got to make sure you're, you're ready and that you do have something to offer people. And at the moment, if you're a voter, what is, it, what is it voters want in any part of the United Kingdom? You know, Brexit gave everyone a bit of a fright. You probably want a degree of stability. You're worried coming at COVID about your job and about the stability of the economy. If, do you really want the disruption at that point of throwing government and 
maybe taking a risk on a party like Plaid Cymru that hasn't necessarily government experience who are offering some quite radical policies or even if you think maybe in time that would be an option is now the time to do that and I'm not sure that with everything that's happened over the last couple of years voters are in a particularly revolutionary mood. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Stephen Bush, and our Scotland editor, Chris Deering. Please do send in your questions for You Ask Us, both for our regular podcast and for this series in which I and Ushan Alba will be joined by Chris and others from across the devolved institutions to talk about devolution in the United Kingdom. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, and it's licensed under Creative Commons. <laughs>